0: Would everybody please stand while I read? One day, as Jesus was preaching on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, great crowds pressed into him to listen to the word of God. He noticed two empty boats at the water's edge, for the fishermen had left them and were washing their nets. Stepping into one of the boats, Jesus asked Simon, its owner, to push it out into the water. So the boat, so he sat in the boat and brought, taught the crowds from there. When they had finished preaching, he asked Simon, now you can go where the water's deeper and throw down your nets to catch some fish. Master Simon replied, we worked hard all last night and didn't catch a saying, but if you say so, I will put the nets down again. And this time, the nets were so full, the, the nets began to tear. A shout out to help brought their partners from the other boat and soon both boats were filled with the fish on the verge of sinking. When Simon, Peter, realized what happened, he fell to his knees and from Jesus he said, "Oh Lord, please leave me. I'm such a sinful man that he was so obstinate Awe struck by the number of fish that he caught, and it was the others with him. His partners, James and John, the son of Zababee, were also amazed. Jesus replied to Simon, Don't be afraid from now on. You'll be fishing. And, and as soon as they landed, they left everything and follow behind Jesus.
1: Thank you, Cindy. Good morning to everyone. In the 1989 movie Field of Dreams, Ray Kinsella, who was played by Kevin Costner, is walking through a field. When he hears a voice whispering, if you build it, he will come. He then sees a vision of a baseball diamond in the cornfield and shoeless Joe Jackson standing there in the middle. And so he plows up the corn crop and he builds a baseball field. And if you remember, the movie ends, the last scene, there's hundreds of cars that are seen approaching this baseball diamond that Ray had built, fulfilling the prophecy that they would come to watch if he built it. Greg Ogden, he argues that there's this fantasy alive today that if we as a church, as the church do things with excellence, right? we have engaging preaching and, and great music and first-class facilities, then people will flock to us. Right? The assumption is that's it's working off the assumption that the unbelieving world is just waiting for quality programming and then it will show up. If you build it, if we build it, they will come. I think you need to turn that, Rich, we got some kind of echo or something. If we build it, they will come. But Jesus' final instructions to his disciples in Matthew's gospel is not to bring people here, but to go. To go to make disciples of all nations. Growing up, I think this command and the Great Commission to go and make disciples, in my mind, it typically meant two things. One, it meant that we are to go away, usually meaning go overseas. And two, The command was to a select group of people, typically missionaries. So I have memories, I'm probably, many of you do too, of, of, I think it's okay, of being in a church, and there being in the back of that church, a big map, right? And there'll be pins on various places with pictures and little brief explanations of missionaries that, at least where I was growing up, usually it was in Central America or Sub-Saharan Africa. And this has been and continues to be part of what it means to live out the Great Commission, to go unto all the world and make disciples. But in our lifetime, my lifetime, your lifetime, there's been a huge shift in the landscape. I remember many years ago, being in a youth group, and my youth minister said, you know, one day Africa is going to send missionaries here. And as Keith Blank was here sharing a couple weeks ago, I thought, man, that day is is now. Uh, LMC, for example, their mission agency is being led by someone from a different country that I think was missionized by EMM. Uh, he recounted a learning about church planting from Ethiopians, worship from a Congolese, and discipleship from Latinos, right? The mission field, it isn't out there, it's here, it's in North America, it's in our neighborhoods, it's in our communities, it's in our places of work. And the other shift that, that I think we've experienced is the who, right? Who is sent out to make disciples of all nations? Again, in many of our minds, the who is a missionary, or maybe if we're thinking more locally, we're thinking of a minister or an evangelist. And so what ends up happening in our minds is we kind of separate out two types of Christians, right? There's the one doing ministry as a vocation, and then there are the others who are doing other vocations and supporting the ministry, oftentimes with their funds and other ways like that. But as I hope we're seeing as we're moving through this Great Commission quite slowly, is that The New Testament has a different vision than that. The the vision of the New Testament is disciples making disciples. Colin Marshall and Tony Payne, they have a book called The Trellis and the Vine, and they describe two different ways of thinking about disciple making. The first, they say, is like Formula One racing. I don't think we probably have a lot of Formula One racing fans, so I'm going to go with NASCAR here, probably more NASCAR. I don't know a lot about NASCAR. I do know a little bit more because Rich schooled me during the Daytona 500. Uh, last spring uh, about some of the intricacies of the sport. Uh, and one of the things that impressed me most about I think I liked it as much as anything, was watching the pit crews. I mean, just amazing, uh, under 12 seconds, what they're able to do with refueling uh, and changing the tires. But, of course, the main attention is not on the pit crews. The attention is on the driver, right? That's the primary person. These other guys in the pit crew, or, or women, are just in a supporting role. And I think that's often how we often think about disciple-making. We might have a role in disciple-making, but it's usually part of like a pit crew, right? To do work in the background. Get them here and hope they'll be formed into disciples. But there's another model, they say, that we can think about, and that is of a soccer team, right? Think about a soccer team. It takes the entire team to advance the ball up the field. Right? There's leaders and captains, but fundamentally everybody on that soccer playing field is a player. And actually sometimes the captain is not even the best player on the team. This is closer If we compare these to NASCAR racing and a soccer match, a soccer match is much more the vision of the New Testament for making classes, uh, making disciples. There's not two classes of Christians right? because ultimately what is it that makes disciples? Is it programs that make disciples? I don't think so. Like the older I get, I don't think programs, uh, they may play a role in discipleship, but I am convinced more and more it is disciples that make disciples, right? It's not that there's not a place for what I'm doing now, a place for corporate worship, a place from programs, but I just don't think that's how disciples are typically formed, because disciples of Jesus are not made by programs, they're made by disciples, which is why Jesus is saying to his disciples, go and make disciples. It's interesting to me that, I've said this before, but Jesus' whole mission strategy was just investing in this small group of guys. Right? He had enough vision to think small. In Ephesians 4, which is a really important verse to me when I was kind of discerning a call into ministry, Paul talks about the various ministries given by Christ to the church, and he lists these, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. And I want you to listen to it. These gifts are to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Right? Unfortunately, you know, ministers like myself and others have given the impression that the task of you is to get people here so that, that we can then minister to them. But that's not what Paul says. Paul says the task is to equip you, the saints, to go out and do the work of ministry. I'm not saying, again, there's not a time or a place for this. There absolutely is. But I think we need to rethink what is the point of Sunday assembly. It is to gather and be equipped to go out. To kind of riff off the old line that I hear brought up quite a bit uh, that was on the marquee for many years. We enter to worship. We leave to make disciples. Why? Because programs don't make disciples. Disciples make disciples. Which means, what is the biggest asset we have in this congregation? Is it me? Is it this building? Is it our worship team? It's you. You are by far, there's no question, the biggest ministry asset this congregation is every one of you. Alan Kreider, who, who Mennonite esteemed a church historian and scholar, missionary, just incredible work he did. He, his last book before he died was called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. And what Kreider does in this book is he looks at these first few hundred years of Christianity, how in the world did this faith grow like wildfire? It just, if you look from the outside of Christianity uh, in the Roman Empire, it should not have grown, right? Despite uh, uh, disincentives, harassment, and persecution, the church grew. And Kreider points out that part of what was surprising about this is that the church did not have an organized mission, program, or strategy. It didn't have a mission agency. Uh, It didn't even have what they called evangelists or missionaries. Kreider says the church is is interesting, too. They didn't even use their worship services to attract new people. So after some persecution happened in AD 68, the church actually began to close its doors in fear that outsiders might disrupt their worship or spy on them, which could even lead to death. That's why we hear about them, for example, worshiping in catacombs. They were hidden in the first few hundred years, right? So you could not, if you were not a Christian, you were not going to be able to worship. How do you get the message of the gospel out? The only way it's going to happen is through the public life of those Christians. This is such a great line. Kreider writes, it was not Christian worship that attracted outsiders, it was Christians. It was not Christian worship that attracted outsiders, it was Christians who attracted them. Right? The Christians' focus was not on saving people or recruiting them. It was on living faithfully in the belief that when people's lives are rehabituated in the way of Jesus, others will want to join them. The way Christians witnesses to the gospel was not through a rock show, it was not through fog machines, it was not through perfect four-part harmony. It was not through world-class musicians, it was not through some charismatic preacher, it was not through some program, it was not through some worship service, it was by those who were going out, transformed by Jesus Christ into the public arena and attracting others to the faith. And this made, they did this, some of the reason Kreider points out that this happened is they had these distinctive practices. They just did things different than the, than the other culture around them. And he gives seven ways that these communities did it. Let me just name a few of them. One of them was sexual discipline. Christians lived chaste lives and practices that were distinctive from the culture around them and encouraged people to investigate Christianity. What is up with these Christians? They don't act like other people. They did it with manifestations of divine power, healing exorcisms from demonic powers that caused people to convert to Christianity. That That one might be a little bit more uncomfortable for us, right? Writer points out, there was exorcisms happening, people investigated it, they moved into Christianity. Care for the poor. Outsiders would look at Christian communities and see how they cared for the poor among them, and they would say, look at how they loved each other. There was a total prohibition on taking life. Christians refused to take human life in any form. That was a basic Christian commitment. They had a very distinctive approach to, to, to enemies, which fuel, says, fueled the church's growth. And finally, their commitment to Jesus gave them distinctive ways of doing business. As the early church father, Justin Martyr, pointed out, that, that outsiders were so attracted by the behavior of Christians, uh, business people, that they turned from the ways of violence and tyranny and became believers. Did you hear that? They saw how Christians did business, and that actually turned them to Christianity. And that's kind of what I want to focus on here today is this, when we go, the place more often than not we're going to go is to our places of work. Why? Because that's where we spend most of our time. Let's put up the first slide here. Here's a quote from Dallas Willard. If discipleship is for the world, then the primary place of discipleship is at work because that's where we spend most of our time. And this is where the need is greatest. When you look at the, all the difficulties we face in the world, ask yourself, what would it be like if those places were inhabited by disciples of Jesus who were doing their work to the glory of God and the power of his name? Let's talk about this, this, what this means, work. right immediately in our minds, the word work, understandably, is going to conjure up usually places we go that are going to compensate us for our labor. And that's certainly part, a big part of what work means. Right? So oftentimes when, we, when you retire, you say, I stopped working. Or after a season of unemployment, uh, you might say, well, I've started working again. But, but work, as Tom Nelson points out, should be redefined as making a contribution rather than just acquiring compensation. Why is that important? Because many of us are doing lots of work and we're not being compensated financially, right? I know many of you are doing lots of work and not being uh, compensated financially. And you're making huge contributions to your uh, families, to your communities, to your parents, and beyond, and you're not getting paid for it. You're retired, you're a student, you're a primary caregiver for children, you're a primary giver for someone in your family. Uh, You're making a huge contribution, and you are not being paid for it. So what I want to think about, kind of expand out what you think about work. Where are you making a contribution in the world, uh, whether you're being compensated for it or not? This is really important because this is where you're going to spend most of your time, right? Most of your time is not going to be spent here. It's going to be out there. And one of the challenges that I think we have, and I, I have this too, is we kind of split up the sacred and the secular. What do I mean? What I think is we often think about this as kind of a sacred time, right? It's worship time. It's hearing the proclamation of the word. And then what happens on Monday is more secular. There's a separation. It's it's not clear in our minds, okay, what is it? Think about what you're going to be doing tomorrow. How does what we're doing right now connect with Monday? How does Sunday connect with Monday? Whether you're in an office, whether you're in a home, whether you're on a farm, whether you're on a construction site, is this happening right now connecting to Monday? Oftentimes, at least I'll just speak for myself, I haven't been in full-time ministry that long. Most of my career has been out in jobs. I've struggled to make that connection. What does this have to do with what I'm doing at Monday? What does this have to do with doing administrative work at a nonprofit? What does this have to do with farming? What does this have to do with teaching? How does my, my discipleship with Jesus Christ, what is its connection to my work, right? And if I do, it's usually pretty limited. It's like, well, I should guiltily kind of tell my colleagues that I go to church and about Jesus. Like, that's, 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 that's good, do that. But we kind of, you see, we still split it up. Our work is still split up from our discipleship. Just take, for example, the word worship. For most of us, what is worship? It is what we're doing, well, not right. Typically, we think about corporate singing. That's what worship is. So we gather as a community, we sing together, an absolutely essential part of being uh, disciples in worship. But worship doesn't stop when we leave these doors, right? I think one of the best uh, scriptures that speaks to this is Colossians 3.23, where Paul says, Whatever you do, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. One of the ways that we worship through our work is not just working, but doing good work. Dorothy Sayers uh, says, the only Christian work is good work well done. The only Christian work is good work well done. And I I think we know this instinctively, that there's this connection between good work and faith. Let me just give you like a super obvious example. Four of us just got back from spending a week in western Kentucky working on a midnight disaster service project of rebuilding homes that were destroyed by a tornado in 2021. And one of the neat things that we got to experience is we got to meet uh, three of the uh, future homeowners that would be moving into these places. It was a really wonderful experience. We got to put a face... That who's going to live in this house once we're done with it? Right? And a big part of why we're there, why is MDS there, is to show the love of Christ to people, to witness to the love of Jesus through rebuilding homes. right? I think everyone would agree that. But what happens if we show up in the name of Jesus and we do really shoddy work? If we cut corners, if we use cheap materials, if we do poor work and craftsmanship? In the name of Jesus... You know, they're thinking they're in that house one day and rainwater is coming through the roof. Wow, thank you in the name of the Jesus that you built this house for me. Right? We know, we know instinctively that there's a connection between good work and discipleship. That's, that's one of the most obvious examples, but it's in your work too. Your discipleship is integrated into your work. You bring your discipleship into the arena of your work. It's not just an add-on. And it's also important, not only is it not an add-on, but there's something else happening too. Your work is forming you as a disciple, right? Uh, think about, again, think about the time you spend here, the formation that's happening here, compared to the time you spend at your jobs. It's No comparison. You are going to be deeply formed by the work you do, right? Because that time dwarfs the time that you're here at worship. Uh, I recently heard a story, uh, a couple months ago, I was listening to a podcast and I, the story was, I think a guy was a monk, and he'd gone off for years and years and lived, a, I think, a cloistered life out in the desert or somewhere, praying long stretches of time. And he came back to his mother, who was not a monk, spent all this time raising kids, and he realized she was a more loving person than he was. All this time, praying and meditating, doing what you think to form him, and he realizes his mother, who's got the chaos of this house, has been formed more into a disciple of Jesus, a loving person than he is. Our work, whether it's in an office, in a classroom, in a farm field, whether it's home caring for a parent or children, this is in many ways our monastery. It's forming us. You don't have to go off in the desert to be formed. Your work is forming you right now. You're not a disciple of Jesus on Sunday and then a teacher or a nurse on Monday. You are a disciple. That's your first and foremost identity. That's really important. And it's going to then work its way into your work. Um, So the interesting story in the gospel I picked out that I think illustrates this is it's going to be a little different take on this passage, but the one that Cindy read is from Luke 5. And it's a a well-known story. Jesus calls his first disciple. And what I want you to notice in that story is that Peter is out, he's out doing his work. He's on the Sea of Galilee. He's doing what he does to make a living. He's fishing. And he's been fishing all night, hasn't caught anything. So so Peter's now cleaning his nets. Jesus is there. A crowd is around him. The crowd is listening to Jesus preach. And so then Jesus gets in Peter's boat, his work boat, sits down, and begins to teach. So think about this. Peter is right there listening to Jesus preach. You would think if there's ever going to be a come-to-Jesus moment it's going to be when Jesus is preaching, right? You think, I'm sure he's a pretty decent preacher. That doesn't seem to be happening. What seems to be happening is, and I, I, I know this, is that Peter's mind is probably on his job. <laughs> like when I look at you, I know some of you are thinking about what happened on Friday and what's about to happen on Monday. Totally normal, right? I think that's what Peter's doing. He just spent all night fishing, he just his income is dependent on it. He's got nothing to show for it, right? He's thinking about that. He's not, he doesn't seem to be having this conversion experience with Jesus preaching, which makes me uh, feel better. Um, <laughs> even Jesus struggled. Um, remember, Je- so Jesus is like, I have to go out and fish. Jesus is not a fisherman. Jesus is from, he's from the hills of Nazareth. He's a carpenter. He's a stonemason. Like, I'm, I'm sure Peter's like, what does this guy have to know? What does he know about fishing? Right? They go out there, you know the story, throw the nets out, do what Jesus says. So many fish, the the boat's about to, to sink, the nets are about to break. Right? It's a fishing miracle. But I want you to notice it's a fishing miracle, it's a miracle that happens within the arena of Peter's work. And when that happens, he falls to his knees and he says, Go away from me, or I'm a sinful man. I am sure a lot of that was the miracle. But I think probably some, at least in part, is that Jesus has stepped into his work and done something that just totally amazed him, and he's overwhelmed. And that moved him more than Jesus preaching. When Jesus stepped into his work, Jesus then says to Peter, don't be afraid, I'm gonna, you're going to now fish for people. And I was talking with a buddy of mine about this last week, and he pointed out that most of us hear that go fish for people, we've heard it all our lives, many of us, it means that, you know, what do I need to do? I need to go out and be a fisherman. Of, I need to go be a fisher of people, right? That's what I always heard. That's what I think. But he was pointing out, you know, that the problem is, is I'm not a fisherman. You're not a commercial fisherman. You don't know that much about fishing for, for, for a living. I don't know that much about fishing for a living. Jesus is speaking to Peter within his own line of work. You're a fisherman. I'm gonna, your, your work is going to be transformed by the integration of of following me in your work. Again, they're not separate. There's not following Jesus on Sunday morning and then doing work Monday through Friday because your apprenticeship with Jesus will affect everything you do. If you you decide to become a disciple of Jesus, it will work its way into every aspect of your life, from your work at home to your work outside to how you interact with people. You cannot separate out these things. Sometimes Jesus encounters people doing their work in the New Testament and they just leave it, right? We see that with Levi, Matthew. He's at his tax collector booth. Jesus comes up, says, follow me. Levi walks away. There's there's going to be work that if you're serious about your disciples, Jesus, you're going to realize is incompatible. I cannot both do this work and be a disciple. They cannot integrate. That's probably what was happening with Levi. But interestingly, the story we read last week, Zacchaeus, we don't know that he does that. Zacchaeus probably maybe left his work as a, as a tax collector, but we don't read that. What do we read? He's like, boom, I'm paying back four times, every one I cheated. I, in other words, I'm, I'm, I'm bringing Jesus into my work. I, I can't do this the same. Things are going to change. And think about that. what that would have done. Zacchaeus is a head tax collector. You don't think people are going to notice when Zacchaeus is going around handing four times amount to everyone? That is going to beg the question, what in the world happened to this guy? What is he doing in his place of work? This is not normal. His other fellow tax collectors are going to notice. The people working under him are going to notice. Zacchaeus can never go be the same tax collector again. Either he leaves it or it transforms the way he collects taxes. Same with you. Same with me. We cannot separate these two things out. Our disciples of Jesus must be integrated into our work. And people are going to notice. It's why Jesus doesn't command missionaries or ministers or evangelists to go out. He, he, he commands disciples to go out and make disciples. It's a call for every disciple to make disciples. And one of the primary places that you're going to do that is at your places of work. Why? Why? Again, you spend a lot of time at your place of work. You know people at your place of work. you got time working side by side to have conversations. not just about the Bible or Jesus. You're just going to be able to talk. You're going to know what's going on in their lives. Not only that, but you're going to probably share to to some degree some, some affinity with that person. You both are in the same line of work. You probably were both drawn to that line of work for a reason. Like You're going to be able to relate to that person in ways that I have no idea how to relate to them. You're also going to share many of the same frustrations that they are. If you're a nurse, you're going to be able to speak with fellow nurses about the frustrations and the heartaches and the joys of being a nurse. I can't do that. If you work in maintenance, if you're in construction, you're going to be able to engage with someone about the frustrations and the joys of doing maintenance or construction in a way that I'm not going to be able to do And the other thing that's going to happen is that there are other disciples of Jesus, which I encourage you, you need to find other disciples of Jesus who are doing the same work you are. Because then you need to talk with each other and ask the question, how do we do this thing? How do we do this following Jesus thing and being a teacher? How do we do this following Jesus thing and being a nurse? How do we do this owning a business and following Jesus, right? Because you're going to run into tough questions that I'm going to struggle to give you guidance because I don't know the intricacies of that business, but you're going to be well-equipped to do that. To get together with other disciples and say, we've got to talk to work out how we're going to do this. There was a time, I think, there was a time not long ago we could have said, let's build this place up and they're just going to come. Let's do everything just right. Let's get just the right preaching and just the right music and just the right facilities. And man, people are going to come. I just think those days are done. Like we're in some ways, I think we're turning to that, that world that Crider describes those first few hundred years of Christianity when a person was, much, they're not likely to be drawn to Jesus by coming to worship. Not because they we're not going to let them, but just a lot of people, they're not going to darken the door of this place. We know this. You all know people that are never going to step into this place. That's why Jesus says go. It can't just be come, it has to be Go, people will. Some people will never step into a building. It's why we must enter to worship, that we might be formed into people who can go to make disciples. We can go out into our school systems in Columbiana, in Valley Christian, in Western Reserve, and South Range, and Fairhaven, and YSU. We can go out into businesses like Subway, and Hogan's Bakery, and Whitmer's Construction, and Huffman's Farm, and Carnival Shoes, and as Uber drivers, and more. It's why we can go to St. Mary's and hospitals and Warren and Boardman and Harmony Village and Canfield Presbyterian Church and Southern Terrace and North Lyman. We will go as disciples to make disciples because we will go as people transformed by Jesus Christ who come to worship and go to make disciples.